Wait, where's my little... There's my timer. I've only got... I've run down four seconds. You've already okay. burned through seven seconds. Man, talk about pressure. Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by... Craig. Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. We are starting the last episode of our second season. This is pretty cool, guys. We cranked. Yeah. And we have thousands of downloads. Very cool. That's pretty awesome. I'm going to start with you, Lee. What have you been up to since we last talked? Doing a lot of work, work, paying the bills. Been on the music side, I've been spending a lot of time on Tonecore, getting my single and Violate up on all the streaming platforms. iTunes, it's now up on Spotify, it's on Apple Music, it's getting to be on pretty much everything. Been working on Bandcamp, and that one's a little bit slower. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, there's definitely a learning curve with the streaming distribution services. Can't wait to have our listeners listen to it, download it, give us some feedback. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm actually starting to hear from some listeners. Shout out to Pete Denico, buddy from one of the old cruises. He and I have been talking a little bit about drums, which is interesting. Uh, what about you, Craig? What have you been up to since last month? Me and my buddy James, one of the guys who came to see the jazz show, mm-hmm. he and I have been getting together once and twice a week and learning jazz standards. That's pretty cool. Doing a little piano-bass combo. It's been a lot of fun. Musically, we're very simpatico, so it's been a really enjoyable thing. Cool. So are you guys going to try and just jam at home or do a gig out anywhere? We're hoping to do like cocktail parties. That's really cool. A little bit of jazzy, cocktail-y stuff in the background while people get ready to go to the big party. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Very cool. We actually played the other night and his wife had book club in the house. And after it was done, they were like, man, that was great. Book club and jazz. That's really cool. They didn't have to say that. I can't wait to hear when you guys get your first funeral and you just lay down a sick beat over a funeral. Yeah, it's very much a funereal, if we're not careful. <laughs> you know, without drums, you know, you sometimes tend to lapse into chill. Dirges. Yeah, dirges. <laughs> Requiems. So for myself, I started a new job this past month. That's definitely startup culture. It's good in that it's really awesome. I have a lot of flexibility to do what I need. Cool. But then i gotten really spoiled over the years with infrastructure things like <laughs> IT and HR, and (laughs) those things don't really exist in startup culture. You just kind of wing it. But yeah, it's good. And I think I mentioned on an episode a long time ago, I had this Udemy class on learning piano, and I'm finally getting back to that a little bit here and there. That's great. So we also like to go around and talk about what we've been listening to. Craig, what have you been listening to since last month? Well, aside from jazz, morning till night, I've been listening to a lot of Marillion. Yes. On the Facebook page for the cruise. There was a lot of very positive feedback on the Marillion shows. Mm. 
So I thought, I sort of know Marillion. I mean, you guys talk about him a lot, and I remember a few songs from way back when, but I never really dug deep. So I basically just turned on YouTube and programmed it to just keep playing Marillion all day and really been enjoying it. Are you one of those guys that has an allegiance to which era of Marillion you listen to? I don't know enough about them yet, but I am enjoying the newer stuff. Ah, uh, okay. In fact, the new album I've really been enjoying quite a bit. Yes. I'm actually an old school fish guy. I love the early albums. So what about you, Lee? Also listening to a lot of Marillion. Craig and I were on a text thread comparing different albums in different years. And so I went back and started listening to An Hour Before It's Dark as well, which I think is great. It's got a to me, a very big resemblance to Marbles. A lot of the multi-movement song structure, very apparent in this. And clearly, we're going to have to do a Marillion episode in Season 3. I am definitely a Steve Hogarth new Marillion fan. Awesome. And also, as I've been learning the ins and outs of Bandcamp, getting my own stuff up, I've been spending time listening to some of the artists there, stuff that's maybe a little more obscure. And one of the ones that I'm concentrating on right now is a band called Avandra. And they have an album called Skylighting that I'm liking quite a bit. Nice. For me, I've been in this mode the past couple of months listening to older 90s-style techno and industrial bands. I was going through my library, and I remembered when we had interviewed Deck Burke, we had talked about his side project, Audio Plastic, and their album, In the Head of a Maniac. Yep. And I remembered commenting that, oh, this sounds a lot like Stabbing Westward. So I've been listening to a lot of that album. Mm. And Deck had teased at one point, like, there might be more audio plastic in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will be first in line for that. I, I love this audio plastic Definitely. stuff. Definitely. I've got on my to-do list to go ping Deck just to see what's the latest with him. Because I also remember seeing a recent social media post, there might be new Darwin's radio coming. I thought I saw that a couple of weeks ago on Facebook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We also like to talk at the top of the show about prog news and new releases. I have a couple of things bookmarked, but Lee, you usually take this for us. So what do you have for news and new releases? Unfortunately, the deaths of Vangelis and Alan White lead the news. Right. Both hugely influential in their field. Vangelis pretty much popularized synthesizers in movies like Chariots of Fire and Blade Runner. And Alan White, longtime drummer for lots of bands, but most notably, yes. Uh, Big Big Train has announced a new vocalist is joining, Alberto Bravin, formerly of PFM, and he will be taking over after David Lognan's untimely death in November. Charlie Griffiths, one of the guitarists for Haken, his new solo album, Tick to Lika, will be out in June. And just my own quick geek out, I ran into Charlie Griffiths and Connor Green at a sandwich shop before the Denver show and had a great time sitting and talking to him for a little while, so shout out to Charlie and Connor. New Porcupine Tree Closure Continuation will be out June 24th, and I am ready for this to come out because Stephen Wilson has a marketing machine behind this, and I'm kind of tired of the teasing. (laughs) They have announced a touring lineup, which is awesome. Randy McStein on guitar and Nate Navarro on bass, and they will be at the Belco Theater. I think it's October, but I looked at tickets, and they're like 140 bucks for balcony, so I don't know if I'm going or not. Disappointing. It's pretty steep. New Derek Sheridian is coming out in July, The Vortex. Looking forward to that. New Tangent. Uh, They have released a single called The Lady Tied to the Lamppost, which is kind of bizarre. And the album will be out in June called Songs from the Hard Shoulder. So looking forward to that. King's X has announced a new album. It'll be their first in 14 years. And that will be coming out in September. 
And finally, it was a little weird, but Gentle Giant released a video for an old song called Inside Out from the album Civilian. I was all psyched for it, and then when it came out, I was kind of like, eh, yeah. this really isn't much of anything. So, Yeah. The Gentle Giant thing, either they're just running off of nostalgia right now with shows like ours really talking about, oh, yeah, in the early days it was Gentle Giant. Right. Or there's something going on with that estate where they want to release something. It's new content for the videos, but the songs are absolutely recycled. So I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, I'm not as excited as I thought I would be. So maybe they're just driving a little bit of demand or something like yeah, that. Yeah, who knows? I'd like to think that we were on the leading edge of kind of bringing back the Gentle Giant stuff. Oh, it's all us. No, clearly. So for those people in the symphonic metal space, a previous vocalist of the band Nightwish was Tarya Tarunin. Since she left Nightwish, she started a new project called Outlanders, which is definitely a prog metal, prog rock kind of band. And in this band are Steve Rothery, Trevor Rabin, Al Miola, Mike Oldfield, Ron Tall, Vernon Reed, and Marty Friedman, and Joe Satriani. What? Trevor Rabin? <laughs> yes. They're working on this project called Outlanders. I just saw that they were releasing some new content, and there's a new single called The Sleeping Indian. Oh, I saw that. I didn't listen, though. Check that out. I haven't listened to it yet. I just saw it when I was perusing news, so we'll see how that goes. Interesting. And then, finally, we're going to let Craig talk about something that's unheard of. This month's unheard of. I'm going to be talking about a band, a musician, a writer. She goes by the name of Dark Beauty. They call themselves Symphonic Gothic Progressive Rock. They're a concept band, and they were formed a couple years back to record a three-album cycle telling the story of a character called the Dark Angel, her fall from grace, and hopeful redemption. They mix elements of contemporary hard rock, classic prog rock, and some opera lead singer, and she's the brains behind the operation, Liz Tapia. What I like about Liz is she's a Jersey girl. The first two albums of this three-album cycle are out. First one is called Fall from Grace. The second one is called Between Sixes and Sevens. And the third is kind of in the planning. Man, that's perfect for this episode. It is. I only did one sample, and it's kind of a montage of the opening track from Fall from Grace. very nice her voice kind of reminds me of annie aslam from renaissance from back in the day now here's a fun fact for you i'll give you three guesses who uh, helped her engineer the second album and also uh helped out on the first album diego Tejeda. yes that's pretty awesome how cool is that i'm cheating your screen is still shared <laughs> i know i'm sharing my screen <laughs> diego Tejeda mixed the second album between sixes and sevens 
Both albums are great, but the second one just kind of has a little bit more variety. Between Sixes and Sevens, it's on Bandcamp. I did trade some emails with her. She is working on the third one. They do tour kind of locally in the Northeast. Let me give a shout out to everybody in the band. It's Liz Tapia, lead vocals, Brian Ziegler, guitars, Katie Pachnos, keyboards, and electric harp. Clive Smith, bass, Dan Granada, drums, and Warren Helms plays guest keyboards. And then mixing engineer and mastering is Diego. Nice. That's really awesome. Yeah. So check her out. Like I say, they're a New Jersey band, but they've since relocated to New England. Look into darkbeautymusic.com. Like I say, she's up on Bandcamp. They got a Facebook page. And she's really nice. I mean, it was really nice uh, trading emails with her. So definitely I uh, recommend you check her out. I liked it. Basically the same vibe as Dark Sarah, which I've talked about on a previous episode. So definitely going to check this out. It seems right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Craig. You bet. For this month's episode, I think I just randomly threw out there, hey, I had this idea about like each of us picking one prog rock concept album. As I look around, everyone and their brother has done a concept album at one point or another. It's almost like an entrance requirement for being considered a prog band is to do a concept record at one point in time. <laughs> I'm a big fan of it. You know, my favorite band, Arion, they do basically everything. Previously, we talked about the band Coheed and Cambria, which is essentially a concept band. Well, before we go any further, sure. my wife Hillary asked me today, what's the show about tonight? And I said, concept albums. And she said, what's a concept album? Oh. And she's a listener. She's a very faithful listener. But for the non-music nerds among us, let's do a quick definition of what a concept album is. The concept album, to me, it's telling more of a bigger story. Mm -hmm. When I was first introducing Abby, my daughter, to the concept of a concept album, I described it as like a musical because she was familiar with like Phantom and Les Mis. And I said, Mm -hmm. basically, take that concept and put it into the rock space or whatever your musical space is. Sure. Typically, a concept album is going to have a theme or some kind of storyline, and every track builds on that story in one way or another. And tells the story. Instead of an album that's a collection of songs, the songs on a concept album are related to one long story. Exactly. And they may build on one another. They may not go in chronological order. That may be part of the artistic vision. What I consider a really well-done concept album is when the music and the lyrics and the packaging, the album art, the whole experience all tie themselves together as a whole experience. I feel like The Wall is a good example of that. The Wall is an amazing example of that. I think one of the great things that Pink Floyd did there was they had the album. Mm -hmm. They have motifs that when you hear that motif, you know it's a certain character. Mm -hmm. And then the album art, the way it got packaged fit in with that and then they went to the next level and they had the movie so they had this whole big multimedia experience that was very all-encompassing and i think that really sums up what a concept album is yeah i agree with that let's do a quick rundown of some of the bands that have done concept albums we've got the beatles with sergeant peppers jethro toll thick as a brick the who had tommy and quadrophenia elp did tarkas and brain salad surgery Rick Wakeman, basically everything he does is concept in some way. (laughs) Rush had 2112, Hemispheres, Clockwork Angel. Box Beard had the album Snow. Neil Morris, I guess Lee was blending Neil Morris into Transatlantic, but lots of Transatlantic, like The Whirlwind, and then their most recent album. Yeah, to me, Neil Morris has really taken concept albums and run with it. With Testimony, One, Solo Scriptura, Jesus Christ, The Exorcist, 
similitude of a dream. His list just kind of goes on and on. Frost had Million Town. Uh, dream Theater had The Astonishing and Scenes from a Memory. I think you get the idea, right? Like everyone has almost done a concept record at one point in time. Some of the albums that you listed there, are they really concept albums or are they just albums that have a song that's really long? Because like Hemispheres has Hemispheres, but the other side of Hemispheres, you know, when it was an LP, it's just a bunch of songs. Fair. Yes, that's true. But I consider Hemispheres definitely a concept album. Do you really? I absolutely do. Because the concept actually starts the album before Farewell to Kings with the song Cygnus X1. So the whole story about discovering the black hole and flying into it and then meeting Apollo and Dionysus and all that, that spans two albums. But you're right, on the B-side, there are a lot of non-related songs. Yeah. Because there's a lot of albums on that list that would get kicked off if you say the whole album has to contribute. Some very famous ones like Tarkus and Brain Solid Surgery with Carnival 9. Much like Hemispheres. We've talked about this a little bit before where there's a concept album. Mm-hmm. And then there's a thematic album. Right. That's a good way to put it. This is what Arian Lucasen does with Star One. Every Star One album has a theme. Right. So my idea was for each of us to pick one and talk about not only the context in which it existed, but why we individually consider it special, influential, or otherwise important to the genre. Mm-hmm. I will toss it over to you, Lee. Why don't you start us off with yours? I decided to do Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. It comes out very early in the prog music space, 1972, and it sets the bar very high for concept albums right out of the gate. Let's set the story by looking at the prior year, 1971, which was a very influential year for prog rock. ELP did pictures at an exhibition. They did Tarkus. Pink Floyd did Metal. Hawkwinds in Search of Space. Genesis did Nursery Crime. And Yes did both the Yes album and Fragile. And Jethro Tull also released Aqualung, which was a massive success, a lot of good rock in it, Locomotive Breath, Aqualung itself, Cross-Eyed Mary. I mean, there's a lot of good songs on that album. Just list every song on the album. That's fine. (laughs) Great album. (laughs) But unfortunately, Aqualung sort of got lumped in with a lot of these other bands like Yes and ELP. Mm -hmm. And this led to a growing chorus of critics that claimed Aqualung was a concept album. Mm-hmm. which Ian Anderson really bristled at because it wasn't. It was a collection of songs. <laughs> and so partly out of irritation and partly as a parody, he decided to go write a concept album, and that ended up becoming Thick as a Brick. comes out in 1972. It's their fifth studio album. It consists of only two tracks. Remember, these are LP days, so side one and side two. And I'm convinced if this album had come out in the modern age with CDs, it would have been one long track. Right. Mm. And I think that is one of the most groundbreaking things about this album. Because there are at least eight different musical themes or leitmotifs that flow throughout this album that not only stand out on their own, they have to play well between each other, too, in key signatures and in time signatures. Take, for example, this. Shuffle in the courtroom, with your rings upon your fingers, and your downy little side is, and your silver buckle shoes. Playing at the hard case, 
You follow the example of the comic paper idol Who lets you bend the rules That's the intro Thick as a Brick theme, played on guitar, with a brand new theme being introduced on the keyboards, and they play in counterpoint to each other. That is so different from almost any other concept album, because this isn't just 10 or 12 four-minute songs that start and stop. This is one long continuous piece, and it's not just the eight or 10 themes. You also have to write the interludes that introduce and end and weave those eight different themes between each other. Really don't mind if you sit this one out My words but a whisper, your deafness, hey, shout I may make you feel, but I can't make you think Now that's amazing musically. Why this is groundbreaking as a concept album is this is really three layers of concept here. On the surface, the liner notes look like a daily newspaper issue. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about this eight-year-old boy, Gerald Bostock, who is this genius that has written this lengthy and epic poem called Thick as a Brick, and that's what Jethro Tull took and made into a long album. Mm-hmm. The initial pressing was laid out like a double album but also folded out on the bottom. So you were literally holding a 14-page newspaper in front of you <laughs> with articles about what a genius Gerald Bostock was in this poem. But it also had horoscopes and crossword puzzles and advertisements and articles about how Chrysalis record execs were getting arrested. It was like a national lampoon. It really took the parody to the next level. I almost want to say it's an earbook even before that was a thing. <laughs> it was like the first one. Now, if you bothered to sit and read the liner notes, you could tell that this was a parody. There was no Gerald Boss talk. It's just a very elaborate story by Jethro Tull. Tongues are very firmly placed in cheeks. <laughs> yeah. But once you got past the parody, the second layer of the concept, when you started listening to the lyrics, it's about all kinds of stuff. It's about war. It's about art. One of the big themes is the poet and the soldier. It's also a pretty sharp criticism of the English court system. Your downy little sighties and your silver buckled shoes. That's all about the English courts and the barristers and the way they follow the examples of your comic paper idols. Superman for president and let Robin save the day. I love that line. Yeah. Aging, handing over the reins to youth. There's a whole series of themes that permeate this entire album.
and it's got some killer B3 sounds. Man, you forget how good that was. It was written over a period of weeks and months, and then they rehearsed it so much, they were able to record it in 10 days. Wow, that's impressive. It's insane. Yes, considering it's really basically one long track. It got almost zero airplay because of the lengthy song format. Mm-hmm. People couldn't really pick a single out of it, but it still tops the UK album charts at five. It tops the US, Australian, Canadian, and Danish charts at number one. What I think people didn't realize, and I never realized until a couple of years ago, the ultimate joke here is the concept of this album is to make fun of concept albums, which is still a concept. Mm-hmm. Very meta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to the beginning of the story, Ian Anderson always said he intended this to be the mother of concept albums, to really poke fun at the industry, the bombast of bands like ELP and Yes, and the critics that had to declare their stamp on albums. But it's interesting because there weren't that many concept albums at that time yet. That's true. So Tarkas had just come out in 71. Mm-hmm. Who, obviously? Tommy, Quadrophenia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, concept albums were not big at this point. It was extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my mind, it was one of the first, you have to have this album if you're a musician. Right. You know, if you're going to be serious about this. You know, I don't remember them having an edited version that they ever played on the radio. I'm trying to remember back, but I don't really remember that. I did hear a little bit of it on the radio where DJs would artificially fade in and fade out pieces. But you're right. I didn't ever hear a special cut that was made specifically for radio play. And there were lyrics in here that I think prevented it from ever getting popular airplay, like Mm -hmm. your sperm's in the gutter. There were a lot of things they were saying where Ian Anderson was just like, screw you guys, this is what we're going to do, and I don't care if it gets airplay or not. Mm -hmm. And this is really considered the first really fully progressive Jethro Tull album. Right. Aqualung's a little more rock, I think. Very much rock. I consider it to be one of the most well-written albums of all time. And for me, that's way more important than things like earbooks and presentation. Mm -hmm. And the clips you're hearing are the Stephen Wilson remix from 2001. That's the version that I have, actually, and I really like it a lot. Yeah. And analysts and critics have tried to break this work into different sections that they then name and analyze. A lot of writing about what each theme means and things like that, which I always sort of poo-pooed. But when Stephen Wilson did the remix, he did the same thing. He broke it into eight different MP3 tracks, Hmm. which I was actually kind of disappointed about. I would have liked to hear it as one huge long track, but... There you go. That's just me because mm-hmm. I'm kind of old and crotchety. <laughs> One of the things I wanted each of us to really hit on here is why we consider this special. If you were to boil it down into a sentence or two, why did you pick this and why do you think it's so special? Number one is writing. One long track with all those different themes that have to weave in and out and all the interludes in between. I think that's amazing. Number two is timing. They really set the bar really, really high on concept albums from the get go in 72. Number three is the presentation the newspaper layout, and all the effort that went into the fake stories and things like that. And then finally, I'd say the concept within the concept within the concept. In this space, maybe Robert Fripp was starting to take on this persona at the time, but I think in prog rock, we're seeing with what Ian did here, the rising of prog rock auteurs. Yeah, I would agree with that. What they're doing is this big holistic experience. Yeah. And I think this album, following Aqualung, establishes Ian Anderson as a force of nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seriously. To me, this is w- pretty much the forebearer of 
what will come from a lot of other people in concept albums. Absolutely. I definitely consider this a first wave prog album. Awesome. Wait, I have six seconds left, so just, just three, <laughs> two, one. Okay. You're just going to make your life harder in the edit, Lee. Now you have it back. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for that, Lee. You did exactly what I was hoping we would do here is like, get something, dive on it, and let's let's talk about it. Craig, let's hand it over to you. What do you want to talk about? I wasn't sure what I wanted to talk about. I went back and forth. I thought Genesis Lamb Lies Down on Broadway was the obvious for me because I'm a Genesis nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Triumvirate has this great album called Spartacus that tells the story of Spartacus. But I settled on Frank Zappa, Joe's Garage, yeah. Acts 1, 2, and 3. This is the central scrutinizer. This is the central scrutinizer. I love Joe's Garage. As we talk about it, it'll be interesting to see if we think this was actually an important concept album, but I just think it's a unique album in the Frank Zappa canon Mm -hmm. because it's his only concept album. It's accepted that it's actually more of a rock opera than a concept album. And I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is, Mm -hmm. but Wikipedia and many of the other articles that I read almost unanimously call it a rock opera. I got Joe's Garage Act One from the Columbia Record Club when I was a senior in high school. Sight unseen, I hadn't heard any songs. Uh, I just thought, yeah, I like Frank Zappa. I knew Apostrophe. I knew Overnight Sensation. So I got it and it was great. What I think is interesting is there's such a broad variety of music on the album. So the opening notes of the album are very straight ahead rock. So this is literally the opening bars of the album. It wasn't very large. There was just enough room to cram the drums in the corner over by the Dodge. It was a 54 with a mashed up door and a cheesy little lamp. With a sign on the front set, Fender Champ and a second hand guitar. It was a Stratocaster with a whammy bar. Just a fun little upbeat song. It's like, man, that doesn't sound like Frank Zappa at all. Mm -hmm. But the album really takes you on a journey. Here's the summary from Wikipedia. Joe's Garage is a story told by a character identified as the central scrutinizer. He narrates the story of Joe, an average adolescent male from Canoga Park, Los Angeles. He forms a garage rock band, has unsatisfying relationships with women, gives all of his money to a government-assisted and insincere religion, explores sexual activities with appliances, ends up going to prison, and after being in prison, he's released into a dystopian society in which music itself is criminalized and illegal, and he becomes insane. Yeah. (laughs) A little short story there. There you have it. I mean, why not? What's interesting about this particular album is It's musically new and different, but he's really lyrically talking about stuff that he's talked about previously and will continue to talk about. Basically, his take on religion, the music business, politics, sex. And as I was re-listening to it and reading some of the articles, it really laid bare something that I've always wrestled with a little bit with Frank Zappa, and that is, from a musicianship standpoint, it's Frank Zappa. Nobody touches him. We're going to be studying and playing his music forever, just like Bach and Beethoven. And at the same time, he writes lyrics about blowjobs and marital aids and the types of relationships one has in prison. (laughs) I've always sort of wrestled with that a little bit because he's just got two such distinct personas 
I think Frank Zappa is the walking dictionary definition of the word irreverent. Yes. Right? Nothing was sacred to him. Oh, totally not. But there was such blatant sex. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just was pervasive in all of his music. And this album lays that bare, like I say, because musically there's amazing stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Going back to the album, what was amazing is he went into the studio to record Joe's Garage and Catholic Girls, which is another song from Act One. And they basically didn't leave the studio. He's like, well, let's record some more stuff. And they recorded like 10 or 12 more tracks. And then he's like, I got an idea. Let's turn this into a rock opera. And this is on a Friday. He goes home and writes all the rest of the material, all the connective tissue. And on Monday shows up and there's a rock opera and they all record it. So they recorded all three albums at once, but Act One came out as a single LP. And then Acts Two and Three were a double album. The musicianship is insane. And again, it's an interesting counterpoint to the raunchy lyrics. There's some fascinating instrumental breaks in Act One that I want to play for you because I hadn't really paid much attention to it at the time. But some of this stuff is really some killer, proggy kind of stuff. We're going to start with Why Does It Hurt When I Pee? (laughs) And listen to the musical break in the middle of that. And then the next line is, got it from a toilet seat. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's a cool break in Catholic Girls that we're going to play. So the reason I wanted to play that one is that's like in alternating 9, 16, 7, 6, some freaking bizarre, weird time signature. And Vinnie Kaliuta was named the most technically advanced drummer ever. Modern Drummer really did give him a shout out for that track because it's a crazy, crazy drum lick. Mm-hmm. Another interesting musicianship thing, what he did on all of the guitar solos for this album is none of them were recorded in the studio. On his previous European tour, he would record all of the guitar solos that he played, and he would lay them on top of the songs in Joe's Garage. And the only exception to that is Watermelon and Easter Hay. All the rest of them are overdubs of older guitar solos. And there's a word for that that I never knew. Xenocrony with an X. So let's listen to Outside Now, which has an old guitar solo layered on top of some studio stuff. One of the things that's interesting about this particular concept album is If you're a Zappa fan, there's a lot of notable quotes that have been repeated over the years. 
One of my favorites was, it looks like a Telefunken U-47 with marital aids stuck all over it. Yeah. That's a classic. One of the characters of the rock opera Mary goes on a, a little bit of a soliloquy, and part of it is, information is not knowledge, knowledge is not wisdom, wisdom is not truth, truth is not beauty, beauty is not love, love is not music, music is the best. And in quite a few Frank Zappa memorials, that phrase comes back a lot in honor of him and his life and all of what he's done. Mm, mm -hmm. And then there's another quote in this where Frank just absolutely nails organized religion. So I tried to capture it in a 30-second chunk, even though it's about a minute. You are a latent appliance that is just an abuse to me. That all seems very, very strange. I never crave a toaster or a color TV. A latent appliance that is just as a person who refuses to admit to his or herself. That sexual gratification can only be achieved through the use of machines. Get the picture? <laughs> yeah. I love that line. 17-year-old Craig who was listening to that, it's like, holy crap, man, he just captured it. That's like every manipulative, religious, controlling government, it just nails it. It's just a great line. Hmm. So there's a piece of music in this concept album at the very end where Joe gets out of prison and he's playing imaginary guitar solos in his head because you're not allowed to play them in real life. And what he ends up playing is the song Watermelon and Easter Hay. And it's like eight minutes of that. It's very hypnotic. It builds a little bit. It drops a little bit. I think it's like 916 as well. But compared to almost every other guitar forward song that Frank Zappa has ever written, this one is different. It's very melodic. Dweezil plays this almost every time they tour, and he almost always chokes up. It was one of his favorite songs of his dad's. It's just very emotional for him, and it really is just a beautiful piece of music. The Dweezil versions of it are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. To wrap it up, I'm curious what you guys think. I think it's important from a Frank Zappa canon standpoint, because unlike Ian Anderson, who perhaps rebelled against concept albums, Zappa was more like, what the hell, let's just turn this into a concept album. Mm -hmm. It is cohesive to the extent that the story is cohesive. I mean, it's a little bizarre, but it's a way of Frank Zappa tying the many themes that he's written about in the past and will continue to write about, but tying them into a longer narrative. And, you know, Frank Zappa was never one to shy away from trying something new creatively. And I think that's where Joe's Garage sits. It's Frank wanting to do a rock opera and explore the topics that he enjoys exploring. And musically, it's incredible. You know, the musicianship on this is insane. So I think this is a very important in terms of Zappa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanted to just buy three albums of Zappa's to figure out what he is, these three are great. You really think that? Sure. Like you said, it sums up a lot of his themes, you know, mm -hmm. what he was all about, what he wanted to talk about, what a great writer he is, those kind of things. 
Was it important outside of the Frank Zappa audience? I don't know. Yeah, that's. I think that's kind of where I land. Yeah. I think what's interesting about the musicians on this particular album, aside from, I think it's Ike Willis, it's not the usual cast of characters. Ruth Underwood's not there. Steve Vai's not there. Adrian Ballou's not there. Terry Bozio's not there. That's an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. But yeah, I do agree that outside of the people that study Frank and want to really understand him, it's no Camarillo Brillo. <laughs> Streaming out along her head. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think that we went in very different directions here, and we've done an entire episode on Frank Zappa, and we definitely had right. people that were very interested in that for those people. You talk to them about an important sequence of albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just throwing out the topic of a concept album, I think the easy softball pitch towards me would have been, oh, I guess Tony's going to do something about Arion or something like that, right? I didn't want to do that on purpose. One, because we've done an episode on it. If you really want to hear my thoughts on Aryan and all of that work, you can go listen to that episode. But I also come to this conversation from the metal world and specifically love prog metal. And in the very early days, we had talked about what were some of the pivotal records that formed what we know as prog metal. And I have really gravitated increasingly over time towards the album Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche. Mm -hmm. And it comes out at what I consider a very pivotal time in music. And maybe if it doesn't come out the way it comes out and when it comes out, we don't get prog metal as we know it today. In those days, if you think about where music was, we had prog rock that was kind of still just plodding along, doing its thing. The late 60s into the mid 80s with Yes and Genesis and King Crimson, they weren't releasing albums like every year, every other year. They were going a little bit longer between albums, but when they came out, they were influential. But also what was really happening in the 80s was this new wave of heavy metal that was happening. There was the advent of thrash metal and speed metal that was coming out with bands like Metallica. But then we also had bands like Whitesnake and Motley Crue and this very bombastic, flamboyant hair metal that was really being pushed as almost pop metal because MTV had happened and these bands were very flashy and were being promoted in that way. Those two forces come together with this album and I think change where metal goes a little bit and where prog goes a little bit. This album, it's a concise story relevant to what you guys are talking about earlier, where it was released on LPs. You've got a flip to the other side kind of thing. They fit everything in one side of a CD. This album ran right at 60 minutes. It's got a good, concise story, as I said. It's got lots of characters that come and go. And I think that this ended up not just being a defining album for Queensryche. It became a defining album for Jeff Tate, the lead singer of Queensryche. So to put it in a little bit more context, Queensryche had started in Bellevue, Washington in 1980. And then their first release comes out in 1984, and it's called The Warning. And then their second release comes out in 1986, and it's called Rage for Order. The Warning was seen as mostly a metal release. I won't call it necessarily a concept album, but it had some themes based on the novel 1984. Mm. And then on Rage for Order, the band had started moving in a progressive sound, more intricate instrumentation. They'd introduced keyboards and multi-movement structures into the mix, but their label, which was EMI America at the time, insisted on still presenting them as a glam metal band. They weren't letting them become this progressive kind of band. 
1988, the band brought all of these moving pieces together on Operation Mindcrime. Now, for those that weren't of the era, we're in the late 80s. We're in the shadow of Watergate. We're in the shadow of the Iran-Contra affair, trickle-down Reaganomics. The Berlin Wall had not yet fallen. We were still in the shadow of the Cold War and will the Russians attack? Will they not attack? There's a lot of paranoia going on there. And so this album comes out and presents the story of someone who unwittingly gets sucked into a quote unquote revolution. If you ask someone to play a single from this album, they're probably going to play this one. And this is the track Revolution Calling. One of the other things I think that may be important to think about here is this was the beginning stages of cable news with CNN and networks like that coming on and starting to promote these 24-hour news cycles. So this lead singer character is lamenting. He doesn't know what to think anymore. All he hears is what he's hearing on TV. He doesn't trust it. He doesn't believe in it. They're telling us about the specter of the Soviets all the time. What's real? What's not real? Jeff Tate has said he got the idea for this general theme after he had moved to Canada and he had gotten to know some people that were part of the militant Quebec separatist movement. Mm. And he was friendly with some of these people, but then he finds out that some of these people were engaged in bombing and other types of terrorism that were going on in the movement. And so he took that and combined it with some general stories he knew of people that were sucked up in drug culture. The general story is that there's this drug-addicted guy. He doesn't really care about politics or anything like that. He doesn't like what's going on around him. And he gets sucked into this movement that is very politically active. And they offer him the opportunity to, quote-unquote, make things better by engaging in this scheme that's called Operation Mindcrime. I'm kind of a guy about spoilers, so I'm not going to spoil too much for folks. But he ends up getting sucked into this organization, doing some things and hurting some people that he regrets. And then on the backside of that, the people that he was working with sell him out. And he has to take the fall for everything that they were doing. So he makes his way up this organization. And then when things come to bear, they're like, oh, yeah, just arrest him. One of the things that I really like organizationally about this album, and one of the things that really hits me from a progressive standpoint, is this is the first album that I recall in general, but I think this is the first metal album that did this. There are samples of spoken dialogue, there are sound effects, there's Foley effects. It really is like a musical, it's a story. Mm -hmm. And the really cool thing that I really enjoy about this is that the first spoken words that you hear at the very beginning are exactly the last ones you hear on the album. This character, Nikki, the lead protagonist, wakes up, says, I remember now. And then the rest of the album is telling the events leading up to what ultimately happens. And the album closes with him saying, I remember now. Yeah. So that comes to bear on the, tr on the last track called Eyes of a Stranger. Back at me. Back at me. 
That's a great song. That's one of my favorites. So from a musicianship perspective, in my personal opinion, I think others would generally agree, the vocals of Jeff Tate pretty much carry this album. There's lots of singing hooks, as you've heard on these two samples, big, bombastic voice. But the music and the vocals do interplay. I found a really good review of this album from 2015, where Louder Sounds said, With Operation Mindcrime, Queensryche delivered that rare example that remains completely focused on the story, but also provides an outstanding musical experience. Every song, every lyric on the record advances the tale of Nikki, yet never does the listener feel like the story is dictating the direction of the music. It was a cohesive piece of art. Still, when when you're just listening to the music, if you were to really concentrate and take away the vocals, there's a lot of hair metal and glam metal in this, like in the production, the layering. Like it definitely has its pedigree. Lots of traditional 80s guitar solos. Um, really, the prog content comes from the dramatic tempo changes that happen. A lot of emphatic arpeggios. Sweet Sister Mary, which I'm going to play next, is a really great example of Queensryche taking a chance on a really moody ballad. It's a duet between Jeff and Pamela Moore in the role of Sister Mary, who's this character who started her life as a prostitute and eventually became a nun. And she becomes very uh, influential to the story in terms of how she took care of Nikki. Yeah, I could talk about this for an entire episode, maybe two hours worth. I really fallen in love with this album and really the world building that they did on this album. I would love to take it to another level. This album, in terms of its longstanding legacy, it set the stage, I think, for metal bands to take more chances and be more experimental. They didn't have to just stick to playing as fast as possible and being in that stereotypical sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of content. You could write about something. At the same time, as all of this was going on, Dream Theater was in its formative stages. And I think the success that Queensryche had in the industry made it okay for where Dream Theater ultimately went. (laughs) Critically, it comes out and the album is lauded. People are like, this is an important album. You need to listen to this album. Fans didn't give a shit. (laughs) It went gold pretty quickly. It didn't go to platinum until 1991 after their next album had already come out. That's weird. The reason for that is when they were touring to support their next album, they were playing this album live in its entirety. Oh, no kidding. It took a little while for the fans to catch up with it. In terms of the band and ultimately what would go on with the band, this is the album that would always hang over them forever. People were like, when are you going to do another Mind Crime? When are you going to do another Mind Crime? Ultimately, they did in 2006. They actually did release a proper sequel called Operation Mind Crime 2. It's all right. Not a great album. Doesn't capture the magic of this one, but it's good. Jeff Tate did ultimately leave Queensryche. Uh, There was a schism inside of the band. Jeff Tate leaves. Of all of the things that they fought about, this is how important this album ended up being. Jeff Tate wanted to continue using the Queensryche name. That wasn't allowed as part of their litigation. 
So when he formed his new group, the new group is called Operation Mindcrime. <laughs> That's kind of how important this was. Back in November, I was in L.A. and I wanted to go see Jeff Tate live. I would love to see him perform some of these tracks live. Yeah, I agree. This is a very important album. And I do think it's one of the three or four most influential albums for prog metal. Mm -hmm. And I have to grudgingly agree with you that Jeff Tate's vocals really make this album stand out. Despite what I think of Jeff Tate as a person, he has a great voice. He does. I agree that this is the most influential album Queensryche did for prog metal. But I don't think this is the most important Queensryche album. I think Empire is. Why do you think Empire and not this one? The musicianship of the band as a whole really peaks on Empire. There's so many great songs like Best I Can, Silent Lucidity, Empire, Anybody Listening. You know, Empire goes 3x platinum, so it outsells Operation Mindcrime by three times. But I do agree with you about Mindcrime's legacy. You know, one of the great things that I found, this is about a year ago, Officially, I think there were only like three, maybe four singles. Right. I Don't Believe in Love, Revolution Calling, Eyes of a Stranger. I'm pretty sure it, over time, every single track on the album had a video made for it. That's probably true. So yeah. if you want to go make a YouTube playlist and watch the entire story unfold, you can do it. Because all of the videos were shot in continuity in the story. Yeah. Oh, man, that's fascinating. I th it's a fascinating story also from a psychology standpoint. It is. There's a pretty heavy brainwashing piece of the story. I agree. Without spoilers. Uh, any closing thoughts before we move forward? This was a great experiment, man. This was a good idea. Awesome. Thank you guys very much for indulging me on that. It was kind of a spur of the moment thing I threw onto our text thread. I think it's been overdue. Uh, I like how it progressed. So this is our last episode of season two. Oh my gosh, guys, we made it. <laughs> I'll throw it to you firstly. What are your closing thoughts on season two? Really enjoyed season two. I think we took it up a notch from season one, which is always the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Up and to the right. Personally, I had a blast putting together the Zappa episode and I think the Stephen Wilson episode. And then just the whole serendipity of putting together Inviolate with Derek Sherinian. That was a blast. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the Beghold interview. I thought John Beghold was just a riot. I mean, I would have him back on again yeah. in a heartbeat. So. Mm -hmm. And musically, I think the standouts were Archeco and Outrun the Sunlight. Awesome. So what about you, Craig? This was great fun. This is such a labor of love. I really enjoyed doing the King Crimson episode. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a ton about them. This has nothing to do with music. I had a great time learning how to use Inkscape and uh, make little brochures for the, for the um, show and posting them on Instagram. Inkscape, huh? That's been a fun side benefit because I like partnering around that stuff. Cool. Nice. I am looking forward to more interviews. I'm hoping to figure out how to connect with musicians and get them to want to talk to us. Cool. Right. Of the three guys that we've had on, each one of them has been stellar in their own right. But just in general, I, I love doing this with you guys. This is a blast. I think Tony and I have both really enjoyed Unheard Of. I have, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Oh, thank you. That's what I was going to actually say is like, I think how much we've all experimented, like we had the concept of the bootlegs, which we're kind of yep. still doing. Mm -hmm. And then Craig, you came out of nowhere with the, the little promo art and unheard of and just knocked my socks off. Like those are my two favorite things about the show. Well, right well now. let me give a shout out to lest we forget, cause they just uh, released another single and it's freaking amazing. Cool. Great nice. Yeah. So for me uh, in this season, I, uh, 
definitely enjoyed like the episodes that I was intimately involved in, in terms of like the planning and stuff like the dream theater episode I did with Lee. And then, um, I really enjoyed Prague, not Prague. Yeah. Oh, that was a blast. Yeah. Those are fun. Taking the episode like with Coheed and Cambria, I had something I was familiar with, but I had to go be more studious about it. That was really, really cool. I have to say, though, I agree with Lee. The interview with John was just like next level. It was great. (laughs) So cool. I think we could have him back 10 more times and never repeat content. Yeah. I think we could do an entire episode just talking to him about production stuff. So we're going to take a couple of months off like we did last season. Yeah. Unless there are any other closing notes, I'll get us out of here. Go for it. Take us out. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. And please do. We want to hear from you about what kind of topics you would like for us to cover here on the show, because we're going to take these months off, but we're going to be planning for season three, and we want to cover what you guys want to hear about. If you want to show us some support, it's easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to write a review. This will help make sure that the show pops up in relevant searches whenever people search for it. And if you would like to support the show financially to help us pay for hosting or whatever else we need to pay for, you can support us at patreon.com slash up3show. Thank you guys very much, and we will see you very soon in season three. Awesome. Bye. Bye, guys. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on Prague music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.